Now will you note the background of this tremendous chapter here, because as we begin chapter 26, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. Now, let me pause and give us a background for this. You will recall that when the Lord Jesus Christ apprehended Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, he announced that this man would be the messenger to bear the gospel to the Gentiles and kings and rulers. Now we see the final fulfillment of this prediction. The appearance of Paul before Agrippa is, in my judgment, the high point in the entire ministry of this apostle. I think it was God's will that he should come before King Agrippa. It made such a profound impression on me, as I've already indicated, that long ago I memorized this, long before I even began to study for the ministry. And I must confess that it had some effect upon my decision later on to study for the ministry. Now, there are several features in this chapter as we begin it that we ought to note before we get into Paul's message here before King Agrippa. First of all, and I want to make this clear again, Paul is not on trial before King Agrippa in a formal manner. This is not a court trial. And I disagree with the notes and with those who make the statement, this is Paul's defense before Agrippa. He's not making a defense here. He's preaching the gospel. Now, in view of the fact that this great apostle had appealed to Caesar, not even King Agrippa could condemn or free him. He's out of the hands of Governor Festus and King Agrippa. Now, let me turn over and read verse 32, the last verse in the chapter. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see, they are helpless, and Paul's not attempting in any way, therefore, to make a defense. What he is doing is trying to win these men for Christ because he's been called to this position. Now, will you notice something else? That this cannot be construed, therefore, as a trial, but it marks the public appearance of Paul before King Agrippa that the king and the court might learn firsthand from the apostle what the way really was. You see, they were talking about the way. Somebody would say to another, have you heard about the way? And the other said, well, I've heard something about it, something new going around. What is it? Well, I suppose Governor Festus and King Agrippa had some exchange like that. And Agrippa said, I've been hearing about this. I'd like to know something about it. And it's well to get it from an expert, the man who really knows. Now, therefore, they have this public appearance, and it's just to explain the way. Now, it was new, and King Agrippa wanted to be thoroughly informed. I think this was one of the most splendid opportunities that any minister ever had of preaching Christ. No one's ever had an opportunity quite like this. Now, there's another item of interest here. 
This was an occasion filled with pagan pomp and pageant. Did you notice that as we read back in chapter 25 that we are told here, and on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into place here. He's a king, you know. And it was a state function filled with fanfare and the blowing of trumpets, as Kipling put it. Here you have all the boasting of the Gentiles. That was the tapestry and tinsel and evidence. It was attended with all the prestige of Rome and prominent personages of that section. It must have been a scramble in that day to get tickets to be in on this, to attend this occasion. All the glitter which attended the advent of a king was there. The purple of Agrippa and the pearls of Bernice, his queen, were in evidence. There was gold braid and brass hats of the Roman Empire, and they were on parade. The elect and the elite, the intelligentsia and the sophisticates, they all turned out in full regalia. There was the pride and ostentation and the dignity and display that only Rome could put on parade in that day. Now, there's something here, I think, that can stir your imagination. Again, let me read verse 23. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. To me, this stirs your imagination. And I trust that somehow or another we might get this scene before us and we'll have to listen to most of Paul's message next time. But now let's get the background for it. You see, all have gathered for just one purpose, to hear from a notable prisoner. His name is Paul the Apostle, the one who's already been over the Roman Empire to a great extent, certainly the eastern part of it, Preaching the way. And what is the way? Well, the way is not a what, it's a who. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said the Lord Jesus. And Paul was preaching the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ for men because they were sinners and they needed a Savior. Now, let me repeat it again. Did ever a witness for Christ ever have such a privilege as this man's having right now. Here is as great an assemblage that you could have gotten together in that day. And they are all in there eagerly wanting to hear about the way. And they're going to listen to a man that knew how to speak. And he's an intelligent man. And the door of that great throne room swings open. And there is ushered into this colorful scene and August assemblage, a prisoner in chains between two guards. He's dressed in the drab garb of the prison, a man unimpressive in his personal appearance, but the light of heaven's on his face. And what a contrast there is between this man, Saul of Tarsus, who's now Paul the Apostle, and that gay, giddy crowd of the nobility that had gathered there. And it's very formal and very stiff. And Festus gives a preliminary word of why they're gathered together. And all of them look at Paul, 
Now notice, verse 24 again, Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. It says, this is the man. My, how they hate him, but they have no real charge against him. And all of that crowd looked at Paul. And I rather think that he too looks over that crowd. And since Agrippa is first in rank, why, he takes charge. And you'll notice that Festus goes on and says, When I found that he'd committed nothing worthy of death, and he hath appealed to Augustus, I determined to send him. In other words, what else can I do? And I hadn't any charge to write down. Now, I want you to hear him, King Agrippa. Now, chapter 26, verse 1, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. What an opportunity. And now all eyes are directed toward this little man in chains. He's not a scintillating personality. Some liberal has called him Pestiferous Paul. Well, you can call him that if you want to. Maybe in the Roman Empire, that's what they thought of him. But the Lord Jesus had said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you also. And so this man's true to the Lord Jesus. I think, frankly, he was physically unattractive, yet he was the most attractive man of that day or any day. He was a dynamic individual. What the grace of God can do for a man. He was energized by the Holy Spirit. You remember Dwight L. Moody made this statement when he was just a young fellow sitting in a balcony. He heard an unknown preacher, and I really can't think of his name right now, and yet I've heard it, make this statement. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man that's fully yielded to him. <laughs> and Dwight L. Moody at that time, a boy in his teens, he said, by the grace of God, I'm going to be that man. And in my book, friends, I say he was that man. But when he was dying, he said, when I was a young man, I heard, oh, I think of the name of the man. I heard Henry Varley say that the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully yielded to him. And I said I wanted to be that man. But I can say today, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully yielded to him. Oh, to be able to say, as Paul, Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now let's turn our eyes from the glitter and the glamour of the occasion to the two men who stand out in this assembly, Agrippa and Paul. What a contrast. One of them is in purple, the other's in prison. One's on a throne, the other's in shackles. One wears a crown, the other's in chains. Agrippa was a king in the slavery of sin. Paul was a chained prisoner rejoicing in the freedom of sins forgiven and liberty in Christ. Agrippa was an earthly king who could not free Paul or himself. Paul was an ambassador of a king who had freed him and who could free Agrippa from the damning effects of sin. 
Paul's plea to Agrippa to turn to Christ is magnificent. It's logical and it's intelligent. It's not just a defense, but a declaration of the gospel. Agrippa was a man of the family of Herod. He belonged to the rottenest family that I know anything about. The rottenest family that's in the Bible, I think Olaab and Jezebel, were Sunday school kids compared to the Herod family. But King Agrippa, let's give him his due. The old bromide, let's give the devil his due. Well, let's give the due to Agrippa. He was an intelligent man and a great man in many respects in spite of his background. He at least knew the Mosaic law. He knew the letter of it. And Paul rejoiced in this opportunity of speaking to a man who was instructed and who would understand the nature of the charges. Now, I've said before that I can't help but believe Paul got a little impatient during these two years. He has appeared now before Felix. Well, he appeared first before the mob in Jerusalem, before the captain, before Felix, and then before Festus, then privately he appeared to Felix, and now he's appearing before King Agrippa and Festus, and it seems to be the same old story. But Paul doesn't mind telling that. But the important thing is, here's a man that's not guilty of death, and they're holding him, they've kept him in prison all this time. But these other men, including that Roman captain in Jerusalem, they never fully understood the background of the charges against Paul, and they never understood exactly the gospel. It's amazing how folk could be in the presence of Paul the apostle for two years and not really know, but yet that was the condition. Now listen to Paul as he begins speaking to this man. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Now, he has a man that will understand what he's talking about, not only an intelligent man, but a man that has a background, and a real background, after all, he probably knew the Mosaic system as well as anyone could that was on the outside. Paul now rejoiced in this opportunity of speaking to a man who was instructed and who'd understand the nature of his case. And Paul likewise knew the law. He'd met Christ. The law was flooded with a new meaning for him. And the soul of Saul was flooded with a new light. And Christ now was the end of the law for righteousness. What God demanded, he now supplied. And God was good. And through Christ, God was gracious. And Paul wanted King Agrippa to know about that. There is a consummate passion filling the soul of the apostle as he speaks. I think this is his masterpiece. I think that his message on Mars Hill is great, but I do not think it compares to this one at all. Now, will you notice here, as this man begins to speak to this man here, he says, I know that you're an expert in all the customs and questions which are among my people. Wherefore, I beseech thee, hear me patiently. Now he begins, 
and he gives the background. May I say that this is something that is tremendous. And listen to it. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. Now, he says, I'm well known in Jerusalem. My life from the beginning is well known to these folk. Paul wasn't an unknown by any means. Paul was outstanding from the very beginning. Apparently a graduate of the school in Tarsus, the greatest Greek university of the day was there. And Paul defended that city. He says, Tarsus is no mean city. It's an outstanding city. That's the center of Greek culture of that day. And this man had been in the school of Gamaliel. May I say to you, what a picture we have here. 1,900 years has not precluded this question as unreasonable here that is raised. The question of what is the way. And there's going to be another great courtroom scene. There's going to be another throne. And Jesus Christ will be on that throne. And you're going to stand there, every one of you that's listening to me today. Somebody says, wait a minute. That's the great white throne you're talking about. Yes, I'm talking about the great white throne. And somebody says, I'm saved. Oh, you are? Then you won't be there. Because Christ bore the judgment of that throne for you. And as we said the other day, your sins are either on Christ, who died for you 1,900 years ago. They're in the back. They are as far as the east is from the west today. He's removed them from you. You'll never come into the judgment for sin. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But I'm talking now to any that have not yet accepted Christ, well, you will have to come before him for judgment someday. And you'll stand there before a man who died for you with nail prints in his hands, who's been raised from the dead, and you'll be raised from the dead for this judgment. Now, these are important issues. These are eternal verities that are being discussed here before King Agrippa. King Agrippa is being given the great opportunity of his life For there is the throne above his throne. There is a judgment above the judgment of this man, King Agrippa. And Paul is pointing to that throne. And Paul is pointing to the one who died for King Agrippa and would save him if he'd turned to him. What a dramatic scene we have here. Now, we noted last time the brilliance of the coet and the prestige of the personages that were assembled there. It was a scintillating and shining show. And when the glamour of earth came in contact with the glory of heaven, this is a tremendous scene, I believe. Paul welcomed now this valuable opportunity, and he launched into his declaration of the gospel with the evident thought, I think, to win King Agrippa. He's speaking directly to him. This is such a marvelous production that we're inclined to read most of it. And in just a moment, I want to read it without making comment and then come back and make a comment. May I say this, that after a very courteous introduction, which I've just read, 
Paul proceeded to give a brief sketch of his youth, his background, and of his conversion, and then his attempt to reach this man. Now, I'm going to do something we don't generally do. I don't think I've ever done it before. I want to read this entire section here in your hearing. It's rather lengthy, and I trust that you'll listen to it, because it really speaks for itself. And this is something that is worthwhile, especially for any Christian to hear, and it's worthwhile really for anyone to hear. I'm reading beginning at verse 4 of the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. Will you listen? My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off in every synagogue, and compel them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem, 
and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple, went about to kill me, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely." For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds, Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Now, I've read in your hearing this chapter 26, uninterrupted by comment, because in one sense it tells its own story, and in another sense it's too wonderful to interrupt with any comment on my part. Now, let me come back to this very wonderful message that Paul has here. And you'll notice when Paul begins his message, he says, My manner of life from my youth, and verse 4, that he comes immediately to the issue. You see, the crux of the matter is the resurrection. And you'll find that if you take the resurrection Out of the apostles' message, it loses its significance. There'd be no defense, no gospel, no message at all, and no apostle. You cannot explain Paul apart from the resurrection. And friends, you take the resurrection out of the gospel, it's meaningless and it's powerless. And that's the reason today the church has lost its power, It's the reason today that the church stands helpless before a world today in great need, because it's not declaring the gospel. The church was intended to do one thing, 
and that was to declare the gospel. This one thing I do, said Paul, and it's time that the church is saying that. We are so filled today with organization, and the church is trying to do everything under the sun. If it just get back to declaring the word of God, then God would bless, I'm sure. Oh, there'd be problems. We'll never escape those. After all, Paul's having his, is he not? But the word's getting out, and now to a king. And we find out here that the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, by itself is a tragedy. It could be a martyrdom, but it was a catastrophe. It's a reflection on the goodness of God if you remove the resurrection. You see, the gospel to Paul was the cross interpreted in the light and power of the resurrection. It's not the cross apart from the resurrection. Paul said he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification. Now, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Paul said, I declared to you the gospel. That's in the same epistle of 1 Corinthians. And he says that gospel is that Jesus died, buried, rose again according to the Scriptures. Now, when Paul gives a simple explanation of his conduct, which was the natural outcome of one with his background, he goes on to tell about how he lived a Pharisee. He goes on to tell about the experience that he had on the road. And he says in verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And friends, the Lord Jesus has never had an enemy that has been as bitter and as brutal as Saul of Tarsus was. I think actually Hitler was a Sunday school boy. And I think that Stalin... And then communism is weak tea compared to Saul of Tarsus. He had an inveterate hatred of Jesus Christ and of the gospel. Now, we find here that this man now says, and he's just stating the case, he says, I thought I ought to do many things. Why? Because of his background, because of his training. Now, he says, and I not only thought I ought to do it, I did it. He tells about how he wasted the church in Jerusalem and how he shut up many of the saints in prison. And that's one of the reasons this man could stay for two years in prison. The reason he could suffer such abuse from the religious leaders because he'd been one of them one time. He knew exactly how they felt. And this man is able here to give that background. And he tells about how he pursued and persecuted them even in a strange city. Then he tells about the experience that he had on the Damascus Road. And you find out that he tells about his conversion. And he tells about the vision that he had. This was Paul's experience. And he goes on to say that he was on the way to Damascus. And now the Lord Jesus waylays him knocks him off of a donkey down into the dust, and that he came up with the fact that he'd been going against the will of God. Paul in Philippians, by the way, he says, what things were gained to me became loss, and what was lost became a gain. A revolution really took place in his life there on the Damascus Road. He had trusted religion, and he had religion, 
But when he met Jesus Christ, he got rid of all of that. What was gain, he counted loss. And now Jesus Christ, whom he hated above everything else, became for him the most wonderful thing in his life. And he describes here the reality of the vision that he had. And the Lord told him that he'd deliver him from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. That he told with a telling blow. Because there is before him Governor Festus and King Agrippa, and they can't touch him. You know why? He's a Roman citizen, and he's appealed to Caesar, and he's going to Rome. My friend, these two can't touch him. They can hear the message that he gives. And could any preacher have had a more wonderful opportunity of presenting the gospel than he did? Now he gives us his response to the vision that he had. Verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. What he's really saying this, what would you have done in a case like this? And I'm sure you'd have done what I did, that he says, this is my response to the vision. Now, all of this he makes clear is in harmony with the Old Testament. It's a development and fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says in verse 22, "...having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come." He's making it very clear that he's not doing or going contrary to the Old Testament at all. And now we find that it's not only a development and fulfillment of the Old Testament, And now he presents the gospel to this man, King Agrippa. And all that crowd assembled there that day heard it. Listen to this, verse 23, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And I think he bore down on that word Gentiles. He says, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, that Jesus died, buried, and rose again. And there never was a sermon preached then that didn't mention the resurrection. I personally believe that we ought never preach the death of Christ without preaching the resurrection of Christ. And we are emphasizing this. Why? Because Paul emphasized it. Now, this is such a tremendous thing Paul has said, and it's made an impact on this crowd there that day. That man is confronted with the fact that God has intruded into the history of man, and God has done something for man. God has demonstrated his love, that God has so loved the world that he gave his Son, now that whosoever would believe on him. And Paul is presenting that to this crowd. And there's a man now that's been on a hot seat a long time, and he's really on a hot one. Now, that's Governor Festus. Verse 24, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself much learning doth make thee mad. Now, this man, Festus, interrupted him. And I think, frankly, it's unfortunate that he did. But notice how courteously Paul answered him. Paul said to him in a very calm way, which I think demonstrates he's not a madman by any means, and he's not a fanatic. He says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. 
And my friend, today, there are so many ministers, especially the liberal wing, they're so afraid they won't appear intellectual. And they're so afraid that somebody might think they're fanatic, that they don't declare the great truths of the gospel. My friend, may I say to you today that we ought to be willing to take the place of madmen, but not act like them. Let's act like sober men, as Paul did. And you notice, though, Paul went right back after King Agrippa, having answered Governor Festus. He says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. You see, you can believe in facts without them being meaningful to you. The facts of the gospel is Jesus died and rose again. But your relation to these facts is the thing that is important and essential. And that is the thing today that you hear declared in many different ways. And that was the thing Paul was answering in Galatians, that it's what is your relation to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Agrippa had to say, he's an intelligent man. He said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And my friend, did you know you can almost be a Christian and then be lost for time and eternity? How tragic it is. Now, friends, we return back to the 26th chapter of Acts. And I'm putting in today at verse 29. You will notice that Paul, giving this masterly and marvelous discourse, the proclamation of the gospel to King Agrippa. He was first interrupted by Festus, and now King Agrippa interrupted him and said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Now you can see that Agrippa was the man that Paul was after. He wanted to win him for Christ. And now Paul, when the man says, almost thou persuadest me, Paul says, almost won't do. It's altogether or nothing. Either you accept Christ or you don't accept Christ. And friends, actually salvation is something that no theologian can probe the depths of it. But it's also simple enough for ordinary folk like most of us are to understand that either you have Christ or you don't have Christ. Either you trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. Either he's your Savior or he's not your Savior. It's one of the two. There's no such thing as middle ground. And it's not almost. It has to be altogether. And the remarkable thing is, Paul says, I wish you were like I am, but not these bonds. I wouldn't want to put this chain on you. Now, this is the man who was a proud and zealous Pharisee. And this is the man that a few years before, he would have bound Christians in chains and put them to death. Now his attitude's different. He wants them to become Christians and have a vital and personal relationship with Jesus Christ as he has. That is, have a transaction with Christ. My friend, we need to come to grips with him. That's the thing that is important. But Paul doesn't want them to be in chains. 
One thing I think is clear here, a mighty transformation had taken place in Saul of Tarsus. And what's the explanation? Well, Jesus was alive. He was back from the dead. This is the thing he'd said at the beginning. He says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? There's nothing unreasonable about that. 1,900 years of man's development in knowledge and in many fields makes this all the more likely even today. Actually, it's easier for you to believe in the resurrection than it was in that day. If it's true, there is another judgment. There is another throne, and Jesus is on it, and there's another prisoner. Either you have bowed to him, either you've accepted him, or you're going to come before him someday. I tell you, the resurrection is very important to the unsaved man as well as to the saved man. Now will you notice verse 30. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he'd not appealed unto Caesar. Paul's going to Rome now, which is quite obvious. And the question is, did he do right in appealing to Caesar? And as we've said, there are those that feel like Paul made a mistake. No, he didn't make a mistake. Two reasons. You're going to find out that he's going to Rome because he'd prayed to go that way and had urged others to pray over in the epistle to the Romans. And this was before Paul visited there, verse 10 and 11. He says, "...making request, if by any means..." Now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. Well, he's going to Rome. Now, you may question the fact whether he had a prosperous journey or not. I have a friend in the ministry who years ago ran a series of messages for young people, which were tremendous, by the way. And the title of the series was, the theme... Paul's prosperous journey to Rome. And it was a prosperous journey. I think he's in the will of God when he made that. Now, Paul is going to Rome, and we come now to the 27th chapter. Let me say a word as we enter this chapter. This might be called the fourth missionary journey of Paul that we're going to enter upon. And I'm inclined to think that's what it ought to be called. He was just as active. When he went to Rome, he exercised the same latitude. He made as many contacts. He witnessed just as faithfully. Chains did not hinder him, although he's in chains. He's the one who said that he was bound, but the gospel was not bound. And that the things that had happened to him, he told the Philippians, had happened for the furtherance of the gospel. God's in all of this, friends. The trip this time, though, is to be a little different. It's to be made at the expense of the Roman government. They're going to pay for his fare because he's a prisoner. And it's in fulfillment of this prayer that he prayed and asked the Romans to pray that he might come to Rome. Now, when Paul appealed to Caesar, 
his case was, you can see, removed out of the jurisdiction of Governor Festus and King Agrippa. As King Agrippa said, he might have been set at liberty if he'd not appealed to Caesar. But we can't do anything about it now. Nothing further to do now but to send Paul to Rome. And they did this. And you have the record here in this 27th chapter. And we have an account of the voyage. And it might be called the log of the ship that we have here. And I want to tell you at this point that the 27th chapter of Acts has been described or has been considered the finest description of a sea voyage in the ancient world, the finest that's on record, and it's so regarded today. Sir William Ramsey, who made a study of Dr. Luke, he considers it a masterpiece and as most accurate that's ever been written. And we're coming now to another great chapter of the Bible, as you can see. Now, those of you that have studied Caesar in Latin, you'll recall the account of the building of a bridge. That was always and still is a bane to all who study Latin. And the reason is that you've got so many new Latin words there that you've never seen before because they pertain to a bridge. Well, actually, this chapter in the Greek corresponds to that because you have so many technical terms Luke gives us in technical language the voids. All right, now, the ship's ready to sail. Let's take off now with the Apostle Paul, and we're going to take a sea voyage to Rome. This is really a travelogue we're having in the book of Acts, and I trust you've enjoyed this travel that we're making. Now let me begin to read. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy... They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners under one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. Now, here we have the beginning of the voyage. And they're going to sail to Italy. And Paul is put in charge of a centurion by the name of Julius, and he has uh, the prisoners. And Paul probably was the only one who was a Roman citizen among the prisoners. Others were criminals. They were sent to Rome for the execution. Many of them would become gladiators, and they were fed to the wild beasts. You see, in that day there was a constant stream of human life from all corners of the empire that was fed into the maw of this public vice there in the Colosseum in Rome. Now, what an opportunity this was for Paul among this class that the gospel brought the most hope because these were hopeless men that were being taken to Rome. And you will recall that one of the things that the Lord Jesus himself said, he came to set free the prisoners, free spiritually, delivered from their sin and delivered from their guilt. Now, the centurion, as we see here, his name is Julius. And I feel that he's a very courteous pagan. Let's read on, and I think we'll find that true. Verse 2 now of Acts 27. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, 
being with us. Now, again, here you actually need a map to follow along in this missionary journey. This missionary journey, as you know, takes us to Rome. And I'm very sorry that I don't have a map for that. However, I would suggest that you get a Bible that has maps in the back and turn to one, and the chances are you will have this journey of Paul set before us. And if you do, you'll notice that now he's going up the coast of Israel at this particular time. In other words, they didn't take a straight sailing from the seaport there and went directly over. Actually, I know that when we took a plane out of the Lod airport, that's there at Tel Aviv, we just, you know, you just start going right across the Mediterranean Sea. And for a time, while you were really out of sight of land on that trip, now you'll find that Paul here goes up to the coast. That is, the ship does, and of course Paul's on board. And you can follow it up the coast there. Now, I'm not going to spend any time with that. And we are told here in verse 3, And the next day we touched at Sidon. Now, that's a familiar place. Tyre and Sidon were up on the coast there in Syria of that day. The next day we touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. Now, notice the liberty that's granted to the Apostle Paul. I'm of the opinion that here's a Roman official that Paul reached with the gospel because of his treatment of Paul and the fact that he looked to him a great deal on the trip. Actually, Paul, although an apostle of the Lord, and he could say later on, the Lord stood by me, He needed the fellowship and refreshment of Christian brethren. And friends, none of us are immune to that. We need the fellowship one of another. We need the encouragement one of another. And I feel like that one of the most neglected ministries that we have today, and this, of course, is a retired preacher speaking, but in the church is that we have probably somebody to do what is known as church visitation. But actually, this ought to be the work of many members of the church. It should be really the ministry of officers in the church. Regardless of the office, you will find that all offices in the early church were spiritual and that every man was not noted for his business acumen, but for his spiritual ability. And they were used to minister to the needs of others. And even the great apostle Paul needed this fellowship of other believers. And I think that, if I may be personal for a moment, to me one of the most thrilling parts of my ministry, and I've never had in my entire ministry such a wonderful blessing and wonderful experience as I've had since I've been retired. And that is going about over this country and meeting so many wonderful saints of God. And they think I minister to them. They don't realize 
how much they actually minister to me and what an encouragement many of them have been to my own heart and my own life. And I think that is a ministry that is needed today in our churches. There should be an emphasis placed on that of ministering to others. And I think this is a very wonderful thing to note here. Now, Paul has ahead of him, as we well know, a storm that he's going into along with those on shipboard. And the very interesting thing is that this encouragement and this refreshment stood him in good stead for what was coming ahead, you may be sure. Now we are told, verse 4, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, under Cyprus would mean that they actually came all the way down to the south. And that means that apparently they were getting some north winds. And when we had sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Now, we've been over this ground before, and you will find that it's along the southern coast of Asia Minor. And they're sailing along there. Now something takes place. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. In other words, they changed ships when they got here to Myra in Lycia. And you'll find that on your map. It's a sort of a jumping-off place there. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. That is, it had come up from northern Africa. Verse 7, And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmone. And you will follow on the map there the way that they sailed. And you find now that they're headed toward the island of Crete. Now let's move on here, verse 8. And hardly passing it, we came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Apparently, they were having difficulty sailing. The weather was certainly contrary to the sailing vessel of that day. Verse 9, And when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past. Paul admonished them. That meant it was late in the season and winter was coming on. We find here that what is happening is that they are hoping that they'll be able to get to Rome before the storms really begin to blow. Now, you will notice here that Paul takes a moral ascendancy at this point. When the sailing was dangerous, Paul admonished them. Verse 10, And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt much damage, not only of the lading in ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And you can understand that. After all, you'd expect the captain of the ship to know more than Paul knew about it. This is... Paul under real testing here, and he certainly stands out. And here he makes this suggestion, which, of course, they found out later that they should have followed it. And this reveals even, I think, 
something more important, the spiritual superiority of Paul. There was no uncertainty in the life of Paul, no confusion. He was what would be called a poised personality, no disintegration, no frustration. Paul knew the way he was going. This one thing I do, he could say when he got to Rome. These things, I think, are seen in the entire voyage that we are on now. Verse 12, And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phenice and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete and lie toward the southwest and northwest. Now, you'll notice Crete's an island that's off the coast of Asia Minor and also off the coast of Greece. It's the largest island that is there. And you have here the events that prove Paul was right, we'll see. The old Puritan divines had a saying that you can put down here, prudence before providence. And I wish today a great many of our super-duper spiritual saints would remember that. Prudence before providence. And human prudence rather than divine revelation. But not that. What they needed here is to have divine revelation and human prudence together, both together. Now, all the way through the voyage, the captain, the soldiers, and sailors are depending on human speculation. But Paul, by the way, is not at all. Now, will you notice verse 13, "...and when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing fence, they sailed close by Crete." The voyage was a guesswork to them, danger of supposition. The south wind blew softly. The difference was simply this between Paul and the captain. The captain was looking to self and to man. Paul was looking to God. Paul said later on, I believe God. Not I believe in God, but I believe God. Life's a great sea, and this certainly reveals that. And our lives are little boats, and we can neither sail by human supposition And there's a storm blowing out there just now, a bit of a gale. The tragedy, I think, in this hour is the fact of the confusion and the world chaos and the darkness. Men are still guessing. There are a thousand human plans for building a better world. And we're witnessing the collapse of the greatest dream ever had. And that's what's happening in the world today. We need men today who know God. It was Gladstone who said, The mark of a great statesman is a man who knows the way God's going for the next 50 years. Don't seem to be many of those around today. Now, I want to put in here at verse 14. It says, But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlidon. Now, what is Eurachlidon? Well, actually, Dr. Luke here is using a very technical navigational term of that day. It has to do with the north wind, and it's north by east, which is quite interesting. In other words, down out of Europe, there was coming 
the storms. This was the stormy season. It was the winter season. And it was a tempestuous wind that we're told. And it was this wind that they were caught in at this time. Now, Paul and those on shipboard are going into a storm. Now, I want you to notice something here that's very interesting. You remember that when Paul was in Ephesus, in the time of the triumph of the gospel, he expressed a great desire to visit Rome. There was a yearning in his heart. And let me read that verse again to refresh your mind. It's Acts 19, verse 21. I'm reading, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, the hour of darkness came, as you well know, there in Jerusalem. And it looked like he may never see Rome at all. And in that hour of darkness, despair and defeat, God appeared to him to assure him. And that, you will recall, was in Acts 23.11. And I'm reading that. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The Lord assured him that he was to go to Rome now. Will you notice, as you begin to read here in Acts 27, verse 14, let me just read down a little. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocledon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. Now again, if you have a map, and I do not have a map in our notes of this particular journey of Paul... But you'll notice that he is out there in the Mediterranean now by the island of Crete, and he's in a difficult place to be, by the way. And he's constantly moving west. Now we find here, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven. In other words, it looked like they might be wrecked here on this island. And Clauda, by the way, is a very small island south of Crete. And so they unfurl the sails. That's the way I'd say it. And they started out again. And what happened? Which, when they had taken up, they used help undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven." And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. In other words, they got rid of part of the cargo. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They stripped the ship to get rid of everything of any weight. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest, lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Now, will you notice, 
for 14 days, they had a rough time. And it's no small storm, we're told. Well, when Luke used that, we've already found out when he uses the diminutive like that, he means it was a big storm. Now, this was one that actually they did not think they'd come out alive. And in the storm, the voice of the Lord was heard through the lips of Paul. For 14 days, they had more wave and wind. They actually felt like this was it, that they would not come through it. But you see, the Lord had appeared to Paul and had told him, you're going to see Rome. And with that assurance, Paul now is able to stand out above the others. Now notice verse 21, But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Now, that was an encouraging word, as you can understand, to those that were on board. In fact, this is all that they had to hold on to. Now, will you notice as they moved along, what happened? He says to them, be a good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. How be it, verse 26, we must be cast upon a certain island. Now, this was what had been revealed to the apostle Paul, you see. Now, if you will notice your map, that all the way from the island of Crete, or that little island of Clauda that's right beneath it, why, all the way across now, and they're coming to the island of Melita, which we know today as Malta, and they are moving now. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, not Adria, it's the Adriatic Sea. Now, the Adriatic Sea, if you'll notice again from your map, is between Italy and Macedonia, or Greece. And they've been driven up and down between, apparently, Crete and Sicily in the storm. And friends, they're out in the deep. They're out in the sea. Now they have come upon the island of Melita, and what is going to happen here? About midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. That's verse 27. Now verse 28, "...and sounded and found it twenty fathoms. When they'd gone a little further, they sounded again, found it fifteen fathoms." Now, that means that they were moving into land, you see. It's getting shallower. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. 
Now, I've heard sermons on four anchors, and I've heard these anchors labeled about everything under the sun. I think the only point that you can make here, and there's no use spiritualizing four anchors, this is not something you spiritualize. This is something very practical and very realistic. They put out four anchors, friends, because they didn't want to be cast upon the rocks. That's the reason they did. It was a storm, and it took four anchors to hold them. And I don't know how many anchors it'll take to hold you or me, and you can spiritualize, but to my judgment, that's a very foolish way to handle the Word of God. Now, let me move on. Verse 30, And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. Now, actually, the crew, they're taking ship leave. Let me tell you, they've gone overboard. And I mean overboard. And they are leaving a sinking ship as rats leave it. That's exactly what the crew is doing. And they're doing something, of course, that they should not have done at all. And when they did that, Paul, verse 31, Now, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. In other words, the only place of safety is in the ship, not forsaking it, not going overboard at all. It's a wonderful thing to trust the Word of God. Now, I think you have that message here. You remember the angel of the Lord that appeared to Paul, and Paul says, I believe God will save the crew, but you've got to stay on board. You can't do this your way. You'll have to do it God's way. And it's a question of whether you believe God or not. Paul says, I believe God, and if you're going to be safe, you'll have to stay on shipboard. And again, it's a matter today of trusting God, resting in Christ today. So easy in these difficult, dark days to take matters in our own hands and desert the ship and go overboard and go over the hill, as they say in the army, and be a deserter. It's so easy to take that course thinking we'll save our lives by so doing. It's a matter of trusting Christ and resting in Him. Now, notice what happened. When Paul gave that information to the centurion, the centurion is beginning to listen to him now, and the centurion have not cut the ropes of all the lifeboats they got there, and they have to stay on board. Let me read again verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. In other words, they're to exercise good sense and not be foolhardy. That's a lesson that's right on the surface there. Now, verse 33, And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that you've tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Now, as you well know, fourteen days of fasting would weaken all of them. Now, Paul said, I want you to eat. This is a matter of sanctified sanity in the Lord's service. Now, they fasted for 14 days, everybody. The pagans there, they did it because they were frightened. They were scared to death. But Paul has done this, and the Christians with him, 
because of the fact that they are doing this under the Lord. But now they have reached land, and they need the strength. They use good sense. I think that probably in Christian work we see less good common sanctified sense than in any other area of life today. How foolish people can be and at the same time say, well, I'm trusting the Lord. Well, my friend, he expects you to use some common sense, you see. If they had escaped from the ship at that particular time, they'd have been shipwrecked. And the very important thing is for them to stay on board. Now, he urges them here to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. Now, use common sense. The storm is over, and we've been brought through it. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Now, God has brought them through the storm. And this is a very wonderful thing. The fact of the matter is, this is Paul's prosperous journey to Rome. Somebody says, it doesn't sound to me to be very prosperous. Seems to me like he's out of the will of God. Oh, no, my friend. Do you remember another instance back in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus one night put his own in a boat and sent them across the Sea of Galilee and on the way over? Why, you will recall that he told them, go to the other side. And he sent them right into a storm. I don't say that he didn't know the storm was coming, because if you say that, you're denying he's God. And as God, he knew that storm was coming. He deliberately sent them into the storm. Now, let me read on at this particular point, verse 35. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread. Now, Paul urged them, they had fasted for 14 days, that they take bread. And he gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were in all in the ship 203 score and 16 souls. Now, friends, 276 people were on board that ship. And it's a pretty good-sized ship, as you can see. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. Now, they've just got rid of the entire cargo and also now the foodstuffs. Verse 39, And when it was day, they knew not the land. Now, they have landed, but it's a shipwreck. But they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves under the sea, loosed the rudder bands, and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind, and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves." And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. Notice now, but the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first 
into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on board, some on broken pieces of ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Now, I would say that this is something we could treat as miraculous. All of them were unable to get to the land. It was next to miraculous. But I'm not going to insist on that. This is something now that we need to note as we come to Acts 28. This is actually our final study in the book of Acts at this time. And there was an episode here in chapter 28 that is in connection with the shipwreck on the island of Melita, and as it's called here in verse 1, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita, or we know it today as the island of Malta. And we see something now of the providence of God in the life of the apostle Paul. And I think that this episode, which is recorded here, that we ought not to pass over it. And we are going to look at it. It is on the island of what is known as modern Malta. And it took place there in St. Paul's Bay. That's what it's known as today. Now, this is a very interesting place. And to this generation of young people, it may not be very meaningful. But to those of us who lived during World War II, we recognize that this island made the headlines at the very beginning of the war, World War II. It was the most bombed spot, and that includes London, of any place. It was a strategic spot. And at that time, General Darby was the general and governor of the island. And believe me, he was a worthy successor to the apostle Paul. He was a Christian. And the very fact is that he said he had no notion of surrendering. And I think it's quite interesting to begin with Paul and come up to General Darby on this same island, actually at this same bay. Now, will you notice as we read on in chapter 28 at verse 2, and we read, And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire, received us every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. Now, there's several things there that we should call your attention to. This may cause us to smile because these natives of the island are labeled here by Luke barbarous people. That's what they were. But here you have another instance of the kindness and the courtesy of pagans. Remember, they, on this little island, are entertaining 276, a great crowd, and many of them were criminals that were being taken to Rome, you see. And we find here that we have this wonderful kindness and courtesy of people that are pagan. You have that in the book of Jonah, for instance, of how these pagan sailors were so kind and gracious to Jonah. They didn't want to throw him overboard, even though he told them that's what they should do. They tried to bring the ship to land, found out that they couldn't. And we have seen before in this book of Acts where Paul has been, how graciously he's been received in some places by those that were actually very pagan and very sinful people. Sometimes 
folk like this are more gracious than the folk that are religious, and that is even true today. Now, here is the incident that took place. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, Paul, and I want you to notice this, for this is so important, Paul did not deliberately pick up this viper. And when you come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you remember it says that they would pick up vipers and they would not be hurt. Now, I actually believe that that's confined to that immediate period, by the way, that they would cast out demons, they'd speak with new tongues. New tongues doesn't mean an unknown tongue by any means. And they'll take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, that's the gospel of Mark. Now, my advice to you today is not to deliberately pick up a rattlesnake. There are those that have done it, and they didn't live to tell the story. You'd hear these people picking up snakes. Now, some of them lived, and most of them didn't live. Those that lived, they almost died, by the way. They didn't experience what you'd expect anyone to do that would pick up a snake. Evidently, the poison had a tremendous effect upon them. Now, Paul did not deliberately pick up this viper, did not tempt God. Now, I believe that this is another proof of our premise that Paul's thorn in the flesh was eye trouble. I'll develop that when we get to the epistle to the Galatians. I think Galatians, again, gives us an abundance of evidence that Paul's thorn in the flesh was eye trouble. The old Scotch divine who said that he thought the thorn in the flesh was Paul's wife, that he had a wife because he never mentioned her, and she must have been the thorn in the flesh. Well, I don't think that at all, but I think that old Scotch divine must have had quite a shrew for a wife himself, or he wouldn't even made the suggestion. But I do feel that the thorn in the flesh was eye trouble because Paul couldn't see very well. And when he picked up the sticks, why, this viper was on the stick. Paul didn't see it. And the viper bit him. In fact, the viper just fastened on him. Now, there's something else I want you to note concerning this, that this great apostle is out picking up sticks. That's a marvelous sidelight of the apostle Paul. There are those that feel like that Paul just rode around from city to city and that he did very little. Well, he tells us that he practiced his trade as a tent maker. He's an ingenious individual, I think. And I think he worked a great deal with his hands. He did a great deal with his hands. And he went out and made a fire here. This is the very interesting thing. These people on the island were very gracious to them. They started the fire, welcomed these 276 visitors. I guess you could call them visitors, tourists to their island, and were gracious to them. It was a rainy time. And Paul got there, having accepted the hospitality, while the fire went down. And so Paul went out and gathered up a bundle of sticks. And there was this viper. And Paul could pick up sticks. That, to me, is something quite interesting. It's a 
sidelight of the apostolic office, by the way, going out and doing this. Now notice the effect that this had upon the natives that were there. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. The word for vengeance here is decay, and it should be justice. Yet justice suffereth not to live. In other words, they felt that Paul was guilty of a great crime, and this is the effect it had on them. And very frankly, I think they sat down and watched to see what had happened to him. And they expected any moment for him to swell and fall down dead. And they knew by sad experience that that happened to some of their own, and they expected it to happen to Paul. And they had a sense of justice. You notice that. They felt he's a murderer and he needs punishing. I don't know whether we had a shipwreck on our coast here today. I think we've got a crowd. If they were down there at the time, they would not feel that it was justice for the criminal to be punished. In fact, they would help the criminal get in a boat and put back out to sea and escape being punished at all. That, I think, is the fact that in that day in the Roman Empire, the whole empire was filled with a sense of justice. The justice must be done. Rome made that contribution. Pagan Rome made that contribution to the coming of Christ. That you don't get by with it. That there was a cry for mercy, but that justice must be done. And since he did not fall down dead. Unfortunately, they assumed the opposite alternative, and they came to the opposite extreme. But it was just as equally as fallacious as the other one. And this is what happened. Verse 5, And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. And I think that's the way that Mark could be fulfilled. If you can pick up a venomous creature and you suffer no harm then I think you've got it made. But when you get sick and some of you die, I don't think that's the way the Lord wants it done. Now, will you notice, verse 6, how be it they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And again, why they want to worship him. You see, this gave Paul, however, a very important contact for him here on the island of Malta. Now, let's continue to look at this in a very definite way. Now, I'm going to read verse 7. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius who received us and lodged us three days courteously. How gracious they were, you notice. Two things about these so-called barbarians. They were very gracious and hospitable. And the second thing is, they had a sense of justice. Now, it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed laid his hands on him, and healed him. Now, you notice Paul is exercising now his gift as an apostle. And you'll notice what it says here. Paul entered in and prayed, and 
he didn't pray for the man, apparently, he prayed for himself. In other words, he wanted to determine what was God's will, was the man to be healed through Paul. And that is the way that he's praying here. And that's important to notice. Now, verse 9. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came, and they were healed. Now, that's the effect that this had upon them. Who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Now, the question arises... Did Paul preach the gospel here? This is the one place where there are those that believe Paul did not preach the gospel. Here is a place where the Holy Spirit, I think, expects us to use just ordinary common sense. Of course he did. We're coming now to the end of the book. And this incident, which would have received a great deal more attention had it been at the beginning of the book, is very brief and blunt. By now, Dr. Luke expects us to know Paul enough to know that this is the man who said, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the man who said, I have become all things to all men that I might win some. And healing with the apostles was a seal of the gospel that they preached. And I think the normal inference here is that Paul preached the gospel. As he said to the Corinthians, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. This is very important, by the way, I think for us to note here, that Paul preached the gospel and the healing was the result of it. It didn't begin it. This was the evidence of what he was preaching. Now, we are moving very fast. We're at the end of the book. Verse 11, and after three months, we departed in a ship to Alexandria. Now, he's there three months, and just these few verses are given to us of his ministry there. And therefore, I think we can reasonably be sure that Paul preached the gospel, and the fruit of it, the evidence of it, was the healing here, because that was the gift of an apostle. Now, we are told we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the island whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And there, gods of the Romans, you'll find a pillar to that in the Roman Forum, by the way. Now, we move right on down, and from thence, will you notice, we fetched a compass and came to Regium, and after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Puteoli, and the storm is over. The winds had blown. The Eurocleon from the north had blown. Now it's the south wind again. Verse 14, They came to Puteoli, where we found brethren, and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum. And that's on the Appian Way. And the three taverns, whom when Paul saw... He thanked God and took courage. He's arrived now. When we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And apparently they took turns on guard duty of Paul. came to pass that after three days Paul called the chief of the Jews together. When they were come together, he said to them, men and brethren, and he explained to them why he's been 
brought now to Rome. And I want to close, actually, with verse 24. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. The church, it's beginning now to move to the ends of the earth. Back yonder in the Garden of Eden, man doubted, and that led to disobedience. And the way back is by faith, the obedience of faith, as Paul says in Romans. And we find that there were some that believed it in that day, and some did not believe it. Now, the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching the kingdom of God, teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And why does it break off like that? Because the book of Acts is now being completed up in heaven, friends. The history of the church is not complete. And maybe you and I will get in there someplace. I hope we do that we've done something for the Lord in our day and generation. We stop here today, and we must stop in this very brief and blunt manner.